two habit specialists walk into a meeting. No, thankfully, this is not the start of a bad joke. It's the start of a great conversation. The right habits put you in control of your health, relationships, mindset, and more. But most people lack the tools to stick with those habits long enough to see results. That is about to change. Welcome to the Unshakable Habits Podcast with your host, habit change specialist and speaker, Stephen Box. Join us each week as experts share their stories, experiences, and insights and give you the tools to build unshakable habits so you can live life on your terms. It's time to take your habits from unsustainable to unshakable. All right, welcome to the Unshakable Habits Podcast. I am your host, Stephen Box, and today I am joined by executive performance coach and founder of Ultra Habits, RJ Singh. RJ, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me, Mr. Unshakable Habits. <laughs> I feel I feel like we might have some things in common, right? <laughs> maybe just, maybe maybe slightly. We'll probably have to look hard to find them, though, right? Yeah, I mean, now what's going to be really interesting is to see where we maybe differ a little bit on our approaches because I, I know everybody has their preferred format for stuff, but at the same time, there's more than one way to to get things done. So I'm going to be really interested to see the things that we're in alignment with and the things where maybe we disagree a little bit. So. Should be a lot of fun. I think, I, think, I, think, I think context determines a lot of the process, right? Oh, yeah. And so our context might be different. Mm. Yes. So we're going to dive into that. But share with me what made you get into habits? What, yeah. Why did you found Ultra Habits? Interestingly enough, um, I actually didn't know I was obsessed with habits until – it got unpacked through a multiple day coaching session with a, uh, a business strategist that I was working with. And she actually identified that at the base of my values were the love of habits. I actually didn't know. Hmm. Um, I didn't have a word to it. And I guess what was unpacked through that session was that through the implementation of strong processes habits and behaviors, I had been able to transform my life. And uh, one of the most valuable things that came out of the session with, uh, with this woman was that she actually put language to that process. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's incredible how just putting words to it. I actually had a similar experience and what started kind of my passion for it was reading the book, the E-Myth. I don't know if you've ever read that or not, but it's all about systems. And to have somebody explain it in that way, it just clicked for me because I was like, that's what I do. I'm, I'm a systems guy. And then I kind of realized that's what habits are. Habits are just behaviors that fit into a system. That's really interesting. So there was a, a guest that I had on my podcast. His name is Dan Markovitz. And he's a serial contributor to the Harvard Business Review. And he's a lean manufacturing guy, Six Sigma black belt guy, right? I'm not a process-driven operational guy at work. I'm quite abstract. But I, I kept 
reading his articles over the years and resonating deeply with his stuff. And when I had him on the podcast, what I realized was that the reason that I loved his optimization practices and lean methodology was not necessarily the application for business, but for personal life, right? Like, so a lot of systems that are relevant to business or manufacturing or whatever processes we have out there in the world are so relevant to our lives and optimization of ourselves. And it was interesting that I resonated with his material on a personal level, even though I don't necessarily move and groove that way in terms of my work. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird because I think in different parts of our life, maybe we approach things from a slightly different perspective. <clears throat> and it goes back to what you said earlier. It's about the context. When you're at work, you have certain objectives, certain things you're trying to get done. So you have a style that fits those objectives. In your personal life, you may apply a completely different style to it. I feel that and I find that. So my corporate life, I'm an executive in, in corporate land. I'm, I'm head of growth, so effectively sales. There is a process there. A lot of people don't realize. But a lot of that process has become intuitive and easy for me. Where I find process relevant for life is I actually feel my life is far more complex because it requires the integration of different channels. How do I effectively integrate wife, children, all under four, two businesses, ultra endurance running, meditation, podcasting? You need systems, as you'd appreciate. Yeah. Hmm. Yes. And, and, you know, I can relate to that on so many levels because it's the same way, you know, I spent a lot of years in management and sales myself and, you know, now having my own business for the last decade plus and dealing with a lot of those same things you just mentioned. It's always been for me when it comes to work. I understand what's going to happen. I can anticipate things. I act preemptively on things. So the systems work because I can kind of outline all that stuff and I can anticipate stuff. Only very so often will things happen outside of my expectations that kind of throw the system off a little bit. But when you're talking about personal life, you're talking about dealing with family and friends and all this other stuff, man, there's just no guarantees at all. There is no predictability. You can't have these rigid systems. And I've seen people that have done this. I've had clients that like this. They try to treat their home life exactly like their work life. I'm like, that's that's a good way to get divorced. That's that's what that's a good way to do. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Again, because context dictates meaning and how we operate, right? Yeah. <clears throat> so, so what have you found? The, the habits have done for you in your life here. You said it's really helped you make a lot of changes in your life. So what, give us some examples of those. Yeah. So for those that don't know, um, I wasn't always a, um, a habit orientated or healthy person. Like I grew up in California. I became a ward of the state very young in and in and out of trouble, in and out of jails, juvenile halls, youth facilities, ultimately adult jails and prisons. And by the age of 25, I was an extremely dysfunctional, psychologically warped 
unhealthy physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally individual. I was living a life of crime. I made money fast and I made money the wrong way. And everything you could say, I was habituated because irrespective of whether we realize it or not, habits are agnostic. They're like, what I mean is you can have bad habits as well. And I was completely habituated to the bad and the unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And um, I left the United States in 2008, came to Australia through some um, chaotic events. And I landed here and I swore that I was going to change my life. I swore that the geographical shift was going to yield some new forces within my life and my being that would enable me to just miraculously change. Yeah. And within two and a half years, I was, I was, I was, uh, I was wrecked. And this time in an unfamiliar place, no relatives, no family, no friends. And I, I hit a rock bottom, like a massive rock bottom. I had been through a lot of worse things and never hit a rock bottom, but I hit an emotional low. And there was this serene moment where I realized I could no longer live this way. I, I just, I just, it was subtle, but a profound, I give up. Yeah. And that was a moment of psychological transformation. And over the next 10 years, I started to reorientate myself um, through to positivity, through business through fitness, through spirituality, through better eating. And within all these channels, whenever you embark on any pursuit, you start to gain insights, you start to do things, develop practices. And through that, you form habits and you reform habits. And that's kind of how my journey into habits started. So you, you mentioned you kind of had this point where you hit this this low point. Do you remember, was it a specific event that kind of pushed you there or was it a culmination of things? Towards the end of my drinking um, here in Australia, I, I was no longer living a criminal life when I got to Australia. I had to work, which was interesting, working after never working and being in a completely different country. And within the space of January, 2008, I'm in California Bay area doing what I'm doing. And now in March, 2008, I'm in an apartment in Brisbane, Australia with a telesales job. And I don't even know how to make an egg. Like I'm completely ill prepared for life. Yeah. Three years or two and a half years later, when I have my rock bottom, whatever it was, 2010, I had, Three DUIs, accumulate, accumulated three DUIs. I was now at a place in my drinking where every night I went out, I would have a drink or two and I'd come home battered and bruised because I would just pick fights. I was angry. I was, I was looking for attention. I was looking for validation. And the only way I could find it was through rage. I was breaking down randomly, crying through the night, crying in front of, I was just, it was, it was absolutely total emotional and spiritual bankruptcy and breakdown, which then on the back of these three DUIs, um, which was external pressure, 
So the internal pressure and now this external pressure of going to jail in prison here in Australia after leaving the United States to come here and thinking I was going to do something better. Those two things um, created a breakdown, which could have either led to suicide or transformation. And lucky for me, suicide was never an option. So there was only one way from there, and that was up. And I'll, I'll, I remember the moment. I'll never forget the moment and the feeling when that happened. So, so what, what was that moment like for you? Just the, the moment was in my room, in my apartment, standing there, realizing I could no longer live like this. My shoulders just dropped. And there was this moment of the weight of an elephant rising off of my chest. Because I knew at that very moment, I would no longer struggle with the choice in the battle of, am I going to have a drink or not? Because it was no longer an option. At that moment, it was no longer an option. And because it was no longer an option, the weight of the world was literally lifted off my chest. And I made a call to a friend and I knew where to go. I got involved in the recovery community early, um, even in my using and drinking as a, as a young person. You know, I was in and out of 12 steps and and I knew what I needed to do to get sober. I knew where to go. Yeah. And um, that was it. That was it was a moment when when you hit a rock bottom like that. There's the reason it's such a gift. They call it the gift of desperation in recovery is because you can't actually give it to anyone. You can't wish it upon yeah. anyone. It has to be received. Yeah. And no one really knows how it's received. But immediately the shackles were off my arms and my legs when that happened. Wow. It's it's interesting, especially the way you said that, you know, it's it's a gift. It's something that has to be received because I think you you kind of hit on when we talk about things like 12-step programs, right? It's something where it's a system and the system works it works but just like you know when i'm teaching people habits when you're teaching people habits we're teaching people these systems these processes for for putting those habits in but if the person doesn't want the change if they don't believe in their heart that they can have the change then they can't get it, which is why a lot of times my approach is I always start people off really small things. It's to build the confidence because I see so often people, they try to take on the big monumental thing. Like you said, when you first went to Australia, it was this like, okay, I just, you know, got to this new country. I don't know anybody. I'm completely new here. I had, you know, this life where I was going to jail and doing everything else back in the U.S., and now I'm going to come over here and magically I'm going to turn my life around overnight. Right. Like and that's the I mean, the thing is, that's not even uncommon. That's pretty common to what most of us think we're going to do. You know, somebody decides they need to lose 20 pounds. All of a sudden they're going to, you know, wake up at five o'clock in the morning, even though they usually get up at eight and they're going to get rid of all the junk food in their house and they're going to eat healthy and they're going to drink a gallon of water every day and like. They're, they're going to watch a Rocky movie and like start drinking raw eggs and chasing chickens or something. I mean, you know, just like it, that's not realistic. 
Yeah. In, in, in 12 step, we talk about, you know, you have a lot of burning bush moments and come to Jesus moments out there. And I'm not talking about that. You know, in, in, in recovery, we talk about the spiritual development uh, via the, the educational variety or means. And what that means is many of us don't have a come to Jesus moment with change. Like you said, it's this small educational piece where we commence a path, we feel the winds, we start to get a feedback loop for our, our environment that we're doing the right thing. We start to build a new sense of identity, which is huge. I had Anthony Trucks on my podcast, who's an NFL, ex-NFL player, and his whole thing is identity shift. There's an intrinsic connection between identity and habits because your habits will ultimately support your identity. And when you're embarking on a transformation, as you know, effectively what you're doing is you're reshaping your identity. And that's not going to happen overnight. A lot of people have a burning bush moment, but most don't. Right. Um, and, and just on that, that's why the 12-step community is so successful. It's because it's a community. Yeah. It's a, it's a community with a strong system, and the community reinforces that system via meetings and conversations and sponsors and all that stuff. So I think one thing that people I hope can take out of that is, and I know this is especially is true for us guys. We we tend to be a little bit proud and think we can do everything on our own. If you want to successfully change, whether that means hiring a coach, getting a best friend to hold you accountable, what joining an organization, whatever the case is, you need a support system. For sure, absolutely. I mean. Nobody does this alone. You need a tribe, man. You know, I, I, I'm not a fitness instructor, but I do fitness, right? Like I, I'm in, I, I, that's, it's a big part of my life. And people want to, I mean, everyone wants to lose weight, blah, blah. People yeah. know I'm an ultra runner and they're like, oh, you know, I'd love to run, blah, blah, blah. But it's not my body. Type. I'm like, dude, ultra running for me is my expression because it suits my body type. Running that far suits me. You find what works for you and then find your tribe. Yeah. That's why the power of a good gym, a community-driven gym with people that are actually asking when you walk in, how are you going? They're, they're celebrating the wins. Sometimes these gyms are a little bit more. You need to pay a little bit more for a PT in a community, but it's totally worth it because yeah. if you don't have that discipline to go into a big blocks gym and be motivated and inspired on your own, you're going to require that community, yeah. that strong support group that's actually helping you when times are tough. Yep. It's easy to stick with things when things are going well. That's it. Yeah. Yep. So let me ask you, man, if you had somebody sitting in front of you right now that was in the same situation that you found yourself in when, when you were at that lowest point, what would your advice to that person be? Yeah, it depends on what with that if it was specifically drugs and alcohol which was really my kryptonite at the at the at the at the base and the root of all my external crime and law breaking and all that stuff really that was all a manifestation of my addiction so if i was talking to someone specifically about addiction who wasn't ready for change i would say to them to keep close and keep 
engaged in conversations with people that have come out of addiction because when you're willing and ready the more reference points and the more illustrative examples you have around you of people that have done it the more likely you're going to buy in a good example of that is in the recovery community we see a lot of people that have kids their kids come in early to recovery well why it's because as soon as they start going down that slippery slope they have a parent who's been sober for 30 years and they know exactly where to go and what to do because they've already been exposed. What For me, I had been going in to recovery in AA and all that since I was 16. So I already knew, even though when I wasn't ready all those earlier years, I knew where, where to go. Yeah. For someone that's immediately ready now, they are at that breaking point, the jump off point. I would say lean into it. Lean right into it. Expose yourself. <laughs> Because on the other end of that discomfort and, 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 and perceived fear, that's where the growth is. Yeah. That's where it's at. You got to lean straight in. Yeah. I think that's great advice because I've seen this a lot. I've even seen it in my own life where the hardest things are the things that you're giving yourself a bunch of excuses about. Right. Yeah, well, you know, I've had this circumstance or I've had this circumstance or I had this happen to me. And it's always something external. Mm-hmm. And it's not until we can say, you know what, maybe there are some external things that had an impact. But ultimately, I chose how to react to those things. And I've made poor decisions in the way I reacted. And only I have the power to choose how I'm going to react going forward. And until you can internalize that and accept some responsibility for your situation, it's nearly impossible to change it. 110%. And I think what people don't realize is that the human ego is such where it will actually look to preserve an identity, even an identity built on victimhood or dysfunction. Because a preservation of an identity that is not working is still better to the ego than the fear of nothing. And so what we'll do is we will give ourselves justification because it kind of feels good to continue to be the victim sometimes, or it kind of feels good to talk about woe is me and how hard was my life. Because it gives me that identification um, that we all strive for. Yeah, it it gives you clarity, right? It's you feel like you have an identity. You're not you're not having to search for it. Mm -hmm. I think it's also easier for a lot of people to kind of fall down that path because let's be honest, if you don't have to blame anybody, but if you can blame everybody else and you don't have to blame yourself. It now becomes super easy to not feel like you're failing. Yeah, many don't realize that um, a significant path to freedom is extreme ownership. It's actually the inverse. Yeah. You know, it's the, the, the Stoics know this. People that 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 study Stoicism know this. That it's about really owning 
your part in everything, which in turn allows us the opportunity to be truly free. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to realize that a lot of the fears that you might have about letting go of who you are <clears throat> and taking that responsibility, because let's be honest, when you're in that situation, that is a scary moment to have, right? Like, okay, I'm going to let go of this entire identity that I formed. And as one of my mentors says, all behaviors are either, either an expression of who we want to be or who we want to appear to be, or they are solving a problem. So when you're talking about changing your behaviors, when you're talking about accepting responsibility for what's happening in your life, what you're really doing is you're letting go of all of your solutions. And that's a scary moment. And it's and not it's until also, you get on the other side yeah. that you realize the free, how freeing it really was. I think the go there is to realize that our solutions have only got us to where we're at. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like yeah, our best thinking has got us exactly where we are. And we cannot, I think Einstein said we can't use the same thinking that created the problem to solve the problem or some shit like that. Like, like there, there's, there's some real strength in that. Yeah. Yeah. One, one of my guests that I've interviewed a couple weeks ago, he won the world championship of public speaking. And he had a coach who had been to the semifinal round, but he had never made it to the finals before. So he had never won. And so when they got to the semifinals and he won at the semifinals, his coach takes him after the contest. He walks him over to another guy who's won the world championship before and said, I've taken you as far as I can. I can't take you somewhere that I've never been. And he handed him off. That's interesting. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that completely. I think that I think that a lot of coaches are able to get their students far beyond where they got because they have the benefit of experience, but also understanding what they might have lacked. And as well, not I mean, Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan may not have been able to Michael Jordan may not be able to have done what Phil did it his coach with the bulls. If he was the coach, even though he's probably one of the best players of all time. Right. So yeah. I, I see what he's saying. I see his point and it's quite, there's a lot of humility there. Yeah. Um, but I think that he's being potentially a bit hard on, on himself as a coach, because there's also the, the talent thing, like you may understand the systems and processes, but not have the actual talent. Yeah. Maybe his protege has more talent. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, I think, and I think in this context, that's kind of where my thought process had actually went when he was telling the story is because now you're talking about somebody that's trying to do the exact same thing as you. And it is a talent thing. So he's saying, he's more or less saying like, I don't know what it takes to win at the next level, right? Because I can never get there. Whereas 
where if you talk about, you know, the Phil Jackson analogy, Phil never tried to go out and tell Michael Jordan how to play basketball. Phil taught Michael how to think. He taught Michael how to deal with what was going on on the court. Like Phil took Tex Winter with him everywhere for the X's and O's, right? Because Phil, I don't know that Phil has ever actually drawn a play on a whiteboard in his entire life. I'm not sure if he has or not. <laughs> but from a mental standpoint, his ability to get people into the right frame of mind to bring personalities together. That's why he's one of the greatest coaches of all time. That's why he has so many championships because Phil understood that Phil was a master in that area. So I, that's how I kind of view that one. Um, just like you said, slightly different perspective, but I, I do agree with what you're saying too, though, that you don't necessarily have to be capable of getting somewhere to be able to get somebody else there. But I think it may be in that one instance where if you're talking about the exact same skill, maybe. I think you need to understand the context very well. Yeah. Right? You know, you you have to understand the context very well. I mean, you know, if you put it in the context of getting sober in the 12 steps, that's why they say other alcoholics are the best at helping other alcoholics get sober. Yeah. Because they know exactly what it takes to deliver long-term sustained sobriety. Yeah. And how to navigate life. So it's all contextual, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely is is dependent upon the situation. And the interesting thing about it is, regardless of whether you get a coach who can take you all the way to the top or that can only take you to a certain point, and then you get another coach who can take you to the next level, or whether you have that person that can take you all the way to the top, themselves the the key point here now i hope that people don't miss this is that you need the coach because what you don't have is personal knowledge of how to get mm. there yeah the the frameworks are lacking yeah the frameworks are lacking and the knowledge of the unknown is you you can't just navigate that and create your own frameworks on the fly. It doesn't work like that. And you were hundred percent correct there. Hmm. Yeah. It, well, here's where I think having some experience in understanding things too is like, I have a framework I use. My framework is, is three parts. The first part is you create a vision. The second part is you create the skills that will help you get to that vision. And then the third part is you take repeated actions to build those skills. It's it's all about skill mastery. So that's the framework. Now, the thing is, you could come to me for something that I know nothing about whatsoever, right? Somebody could come to me, say, for, for marathon or ultra marathon running. Now, in terms of the actual running part, I could probably get you some pretty decent results. Somebody like you who has run ultramarathons would probably be able to get them even better results, even though I have tons of certifications, because you have experience in doing that. I've only ever run a 5K. Running's not my thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so for me, I don't have that experience to say, hey, this is actually what's going to happen when you're running an ultramarathon, right? You have those contextual experiences. Mm -hmm. But in terms of, can I help this person dial their nutrition in? 
Can I help them make their workouts more effective? Can I help them reduce their stress levels? Can I help them with their time management and their productivity? My framework can do all of that. So the only thing that I can't necessarily help that person do is build the specific skills they need for that activity. Yeah, 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 totally. I I get that. And, and, And that's why I think as a coach, a broader coach, you then you you then work with specific coaches or individuals yeah. that can help your clients. There's a network there, right? For instance, yeah. and it's an interesting point you brought up. For instance, I've had running coaches, some of the best in the world, that are runners. I've got a PT now who's a young kid, really into science and data as the young guys are, and he and I do a lot of other work and he takes the wider context of my life into account, kids, blah, 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 business. I'm running much better. I feel with him than the running coaches because the running coaches were just focused on mileage and they were only looking at my life through their own context. I don't have the opportunity to sleep at noon. These guys do double sessions. They get to sleep during the day. I've got businesses to run. I've got kids. I can't do that shit. Yeah. So I'm fatigued. Come race day, I'm like I'm like already tired. Right. Because it's just been it's just been day in day out grinding with no wider consideration. So in many ways, maybe being too close yeah. and having too much context makes you tunnel vision yeah interesting right yeah and you know it's funny uh my wife and i were actually having this exact same conversation about medical professionals when you go to a specialist sometimes although there might be another part of your body that could impact that area that they specialize in they don't even look at it like they literally zero in there and they're like, well, we can't figure out what the problem is. And all they had to do was go two feet over and there's the problem right there. But they never see it because they're so laser focused on their area of specialty. Yeah. No, it's it's crazy. I mean, my my PT, we do running form. We focus on my gait. If we were to run, he can't run more than three or four Ks holding pace with me, but it doesn't matter. Right. Because he's technically sound in, no, in his knowledge and he knows what great looks like. He knows what good looks like. He's done the research. Yeah. Um, and then he's also, like I said, taking the wider context. So if I had an issue with um, my back hurting, you know, when I'm running or my arms hurting, he's looking at the way I'm, uh, you know, my my posture and things like that. Whereas. Yeah. My running coaches, those conversations wouldn't even come up. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So it, it's it's definitely good. And I think that people maybe should realize that sometimes you need help from multiple sides because we, we talk about the context of understanding a situation, but there's also the, the different perspectives that people have. And I think sometimes it can be good to get help in different areas. And like you said, that's why... The best coaches, they do have a network. They have other people that they can refer to, that they can reach out to, that they can bounce ideas off of. Because just like you were just saying, you you have a PT, you have a running coach, 
you probably have other coaches as well. Um, I have a speech coach. I have a business coach. I have, I, I, I'm a certified trainer. I actually, I haven't, my, my certification is technically called elite trainer because I hold so many certifications. I've established that level of expertise and I still hire someone else to do Ooh. my programming to take it off my plate <laughs> because I don't feel like doing it. And mm. I know that if I try to do my own, now I'm only holding myself accountable to me. But by having a coach, I'm now accountable to someone else. So the best coaches have coaches. Like you said, Michael Jordan, by many people's standards, is the greatest basketball player of all time. But he had coaches. Tim Grover. Yeah. Tim Grover, he, he's written a book called Relentless. He was Michael Jordan's effectively PT, but became almost his psychologist. He also worked with Kobe Bryant and Dwayne Wade. And he was recently on the Tom Bilyeu podcast. And whilst I don't necessarily agree with, he's 100% performance orientated to the extent of sacrifice of things that I'm not necessarily willing to, but I appreciate it. I, I can certainly appreciate it. And it's not a moral issue for me. I understand the type of people he's working with, yeah. but he effectively is a, is a personal trainer like yourself, but ended up getting involved in the psychology in the emotional context of his athletes. Cause you have to. Yeah. Right. It, when I started training, it was because I, I had my own 80-pound weight loss, and that got me inspired to start training. So I became a trainer. I did that for a few years, got some people results, but there were those people who weren't getting results. So I started studying nutrition. All right, so now I'm doing fitness and nutrition. More people are getting results, but there's still people who aren't getting results. So then I started looking at some of the things outside of just the way people exercise, the way they ate. And I started seeing the interconnectivity, your work life, your family life, your stress, your spiritual health, your relationships, all of those things have an impact even as sim- on something as simple as losing weight. And so I started learning more and more about behavior change. And now I'm at the point where the fitness and nutrition stuff is maybe like one sixth of what I do. Right. Because it's important, but it's like if you just do it by itself, it's not a lasting thing. Like you said, you almost have to become a psychologist. It's a cog in a machine. Yeah. Isn't it? Because if you don't understand the the mental game, like you said, your coach, even though he's not a runner, even though he doesn't have that experience, he has you running better. Why? Because he's not after you getting the absolute best best running time he's not after you get in the absolute best running form and all this other stuff he's focused on rj the person yeah that is why and i was having this conversation with my wife last night i always struggle as to whether or not i should be signed up for races because when i'm signed up for races as i am now And the last two races, I've been really sick coming into the races. Uh, Last one was challenging because it was a long, it was about an 11-hour run halfway up to Everest. 
in terms of elevation. Mm-hmm. And I was really sick only a few weeks out and I was training while I was sick. And this time the distance isn't as far in my next race, but I got a virus, I got a, a flu. And what happens is because the athlete in me becomes so alive, I forget about the big picture mm-hmm. and that I'm not a professional athlete and that I've got a whole ecosystem of a life that requires me to have the right energy, yep. be well, but I become completely imbalanced when I have a race on the horizon. Yep. And so I'm actually is, you know, even with somebody that is focused on habits and sustainable living, I struggle too. And as you yep. know, it's through our own struggles and journeys that we realize we can help others. But the context of what you're talking about is so relevant for me because when I have races, I lose all sight of the effective integration and balance sometimes. Yeah. Now, if I was a 23-year-old professional ultra runner and running was at the center of my universe, it'd be a different story, wouldn't it? Right. Hmm. Yep. Context matters, right? Hmm. Yeah. Definitely. You know, it's, it's very interesting um, because – there's parts of your life that you do have to be super focused on. But usually it's only for a short period of time. There, there's really not a lot of things that we have to be super focused on all the time. And I think sometimes what I see happen with people is I, I like to use the analogy of a dial. And that dial has a 0 to a 10 level. And what happens is each part of our life has its own dial. And maybe work got really crazy and worked at a 10. Well, all of a sudden now your nutrition, instead of maybe putting it at a four or five, where it's at least halfway decent, you just turn the nutrition knob off. You turn the fitness knob off. You turned the meditation knob off. You turn you start to turn the, you know, may, maybe you dropped your family knob down to a one, right? Where it's like you're barely paying attention to your family. That creates friction. Certainly does. And that's why a good habit is to, I heard this, uh, uh, we at my alma mater, where I did my uh, MBA, we have a meet the CEO where we get top CEOs from Australia come in and, and talk and it's business and life. And I think it was the ex-CEO of ironically McDonald's, which is funny. She was saying that um, she has to reflect weekly, formally reflect weekly as to how well she's integrated the different various components of her life to make sure that the shit doesn't get away from her. She's not ignoring her husband. She's not ignoring her kids because it's this continual evaluation without beating ourselves up and realizing we're human and not going into one of the dangers of being habits orientated is obsessive compulsiveness. Yeah. Is in and we just need to make sure we're we're fluid, we're not rigid, and that we are gentle when we do reflect on how well we've traveled and may realize that we've ignored certain elements of our life that we should be focusing a little bit more on. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And it's ironic. At least I know for me, I don't know if you teach the same thing or not, but one of the things I, and I always find a bit of irony in it, but one of the things I teach is 
even though I'm teaching you habits, which by definition are things that we do repeatedly that we're usually not aware of, the biggest component of everything I teach is about awareness. So, so there's a bit of irony in there, but at the point that we start to become unaware, that's when mistakes happen. That's when we stop being as focused on things and it can start to slip. And it's not until things have slipped to the point that we, that they start to negatively impact us that we notice. Mm. Yeah. That's why, again, I think journaling as frequently as possible is so important because what it does is it enables us to hold the mirror up quicker to realize that slippage after an hour or two hours or a day versus three weeks. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I've got one of my mentors. He said, my only requirement for myself is I have to be on top of my game for 30 minutes a day. He said, now that doesn't mean I only work 30 minutes a day. It doesn't mean that, you know, there's not days that I don't do anything at all. Or there might be other days where I'm like really focused for hours at a time. Mm -hmm. He's like, but my focus is I make sure that each day I just have 30 minutes of focused work time. And I make yeah, those 30 really minutes count. Yeah. I, I find whenever um, I'm very, I'm, I'm quite successful at closing work in terms yeah. of the sales context. And I think a big part of my success is that I know within the sales process when to really come alive and yeah. become extraordinarily detail, hyper-focused, and it's like this win, especially as you get towards these final pitches and presentations. And I peak in terms of focus for a period of uh, days mm -hmm. and go hard, focus, close, and then I'll subside. Yeah. And I actually, it's funny you mentioned that because I kind of live my life like that. I, it's like this, this is continual expansion focus and then I dial it down and that's how I find it's best to for me to sustain energy levels long term yep because I, I just can't be hyper focused all the time I, I don't even have the attention span for that to be frank well I, I mean going we can even use your your ultra marathon running here as a perfect example right because you can't go at your peak pace for the entire length of that I've it's tried. It's impossible. No, no, nobody can. I mean, even, no. even the most elite of runners can't maintain their absolute peak pace the entire time. You have to learn to pace yourself. I found the competitive advantage. Ultra running is an anomaly because you have variation of top, top, topography. Yeah. Heat. Nutrition, which I've always never, I never respected until the, like the, it took me three and a half years to finally respect the power of nutrition during a race, yeah. not just being ad hoc. But ultra marathons are really about managing your engine, your ego, your mindset 
in a way that sees you with continuous sustainable output. It's almost a, a case of kind of out. Yes, you, it's better to be quick. It's always value in being quick. But in an ultra marathon, especially in the far distances, sex doesn't matter usually. At the elite level, usually men win. But in, in the mid level, women are beating men all the time, even at the elite level. Because with that kind of distance, sometimes men are worse because of their egos. Yeah. But you're 100% right. It's just about managing your state. Ultra marathons are really good for continually checking in with your state. Yeah. You have to. Where am I at? Where's my heart rate? What's my output? What's my nutrition? Where's my mind at? Hmm. It's also, I think the marathon thing is a great analogy because, and, and I'm using this because I actually just had finished up my sports nutrition certification this week. And the case study that I did was actually on marathon runner, for a marathon All right. runner. <laughs> and, uh, I had to actually do the nutrition programming for a marathon runner. And one of the things that was interesting in doing my research and talking with some friends that I know that do marathons is I didn't know that most marathon training programs never take you past 20 miles. Mm. And so everybody's like, you know, so the question is always like, well, how do you get through the last 6.2 miles, right? If you only train to go 20. And the answer is because you've trained your body, you've prepared it. And so just like in life, if you want to get somewhere that you've never been, you don't have to wait until you get there to get there, right? You take all the steps, you do the actions, you do the prep work, you respect the process, you put in the time, the effort, and the work, and then when you get to that point, your body, your your spirit, everything will be ready to take you there. Man, bang on. I, I, I don't typically run on road. I, I've done some long events, like seven marathons and consecutive marathons and stuff like that, like just because but road isn't my thing but i had a good friend who runs on trails and helps he's extremely technical he's an engineer but he wanted to run specifically a, he's over 40 he wanted to run a two-hour 34 minute marathon like a weird time he trained he trained he had an 18 week training block or something but he trained himself to run and hold a pace that on race day, when he raced in Canberra, there was wind factor and all that. He hit to the number his time because his body had become so climatized to running at a certain pace yep. through that 18 week block. And he didn't run, he didn't train all the way up to, like you said, he, he got up to probably around 20 miles, but his body knew what to do. After 20 miles, his body knew what to do for the rest of the the the, the um, 10 odd miles, right? Yeah. Just whatever. Six six miles, sorry. It's an ultra yeah. marathon, 50k. So yeah. <laughs> you're 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 just you're taking us on up all the way already. So <laughs> well, because we say marathons in the ultra community, we're thinking 50k at least, 30 miles. Yeah. So I always forget that actual real marathon is 26 miles, right? Yeah, just just keep in mind that you're talking to the guy who did 3.1 miles. 
Oh, looking so good, but I'm sure you can do more pull up than me. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's funny, man, because I remember doing that 5K, and all I wanted to do, I, I looked kind of see what the average time for a new person is, and I was like, all right, cool. I'm setting my goal at 30 minutes. That's my goal. I just want to run. I want to be able to run the entire thing, and I want to do it in 30 minutes. And I remember coming up on the uh, finish line, and I saw the clock, and I. At this point, like my vision's getting blurry. I don't even know what the second set of numbers is. Yeah. I could just clearly see that it started with a 29. And I just hit like this all out sprint. And I actually have the picture of it. I finished. I'm crossing the finish line at 29, like 53 or so. I like oh, I made it by like seven seconds. <laughs> that's your version of breaking two. Yeah, so that that's 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 my running story. I retired after that. I was like, I'm good job. You got to retire when you're on top, bro. Yeah, I'm retiring. I'm going out on top. I've won the championship. That's it. <laughs> I mean, I had to give myself the trophy, but that's that's okay. yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you have to celebrate your own wins, right? That's it, bro. Hey, you know, as Snoop Dogg said the other day, I saw some clip. He said, "I like to thank me." You know, like everyone's always, oh, "I want to thank you." He goes, "I want to thank me for all the hard work I put." It was brilliant. Brilliant. Love it. Love so it. simple, but I've never heard it. Mm. I, I mean, I've heard uh, Terrell Owens say, I love me some me, but that seems slight, slightly different. So That's a bit, yeah, it's a bit different. <laughs> Wait, man, I, um, we are reaching our time, and I know you do have some other stuff to go on do after this. So I want to respect your time. If you want to real quick, tell everybody exactly what it is that you help people do and how they can get a hold of you. <laughs> Yeah, so my real focus is on uh, the executive that is looking to uh, develop habits and a integrated life with a focus on really what we call ultra performance. So we're not talking about mediocrity or um, or kind of just average results. We're looking at optimization of all areas of our life. And I really focus specifically on the executive context as per our conversation. It's, it's the context that I really understand. Um, we have a podcast uh, really focused on other executives, uh, military elite, professional athletes. And we talk about habits and, and performance. Everything you need to know about me is at www.ultrahabits.co. All You'll find right. me there. Appreciate it. And I will make sure that link gets put into your show notes and page as well. So that way people don't have to uh, go scrambling for a piece of paper to write it down. Yeah, right no there. worries. <laughs> now, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for our time, Stephen. I really appreciate the conversation. Yeah, absolutely, RJ. Man, appreciate you coming on to the show today and being willing to share your insights, your knowledge, and your expertise, as well as your stories with everybody. Thanks, brother. I just want to uh, quickly remind everyone that you can subscribe to the Unshakable Habits podcast by going to our YouTube page, unshakablehabits.com slash YouTube, or you can find us anywhere that plays your favorite podcast. This is Stephen Box reminding you that you were not made to be average, and that if you want to take your habits from unsustainable to unshakable, the first step is to take action. Thanks for listening to the Unshakable Habits Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. 
To catch all the latest, please subscribe at unshakablehabits.com slash YouTube or on your favorite podcast app. You can learn more about Unshakable Habits at unshakablehabits.com. Until next week, be unshakable, my friends. Unshakable Habits.